0: So, Ruth chapter 4, starting on verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the king's man redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the king's man redeemer, Naomi Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the king's man redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the king's man redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witness that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead in his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by his young woman, this young woman, may your family be like that of Paris, whom Tamar brought to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in, old, in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Ezra. Ezra, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David.
1: Thank you very much for reading for us, and thank you for letting me come on your weekend away. I've really enjoyed being with you and um, getting to know uh, a little bit more about uh, your church. Um, So many lovely things that uh, God is doing amongst you. Um, so thank you for the, the chance to come and be a part of uh, your weekend. Uh, we wanted to think about fear together. Um, and um, uh, we have thought of the way in which uh, fear is uh, to be found um, in all sorts of places, uh, found in our personal world. Uh, we thought a little bit on the, uh, uh, the first morning. Uh, Of some of the ways um, in which fear gets expressed um, in our own personal experience. Uh, But we've also seen uh, the way in which fear is also there in the public realm. Uh, How fear um, invades our political realm Um, and then we move from there uh, to think of uh, the way in which uh, we find comfort in our fear. That there is a God who draws near to us uh, in our uh, our difficulties uh, and in our fearfulness. Uh, I thought about this this God who breaks into um, our experience uh, with grace and mercy. A God who's ready to protect us. A God who has promised to keep us. A God who in Christ has come to save us. Um, And then that gospel does indeed uh, speak very powerfully uh, in the context of our fears. Uh, We thought of uh, some of these verses, uh, how God says, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. Uh, And we went on to to think uh, yesterday evening, of the way in which that, that knowledge of, of Christ being close to us, of being with us, of such a one, uh, breaking into our lives, um, opens up the possibility of living courageously for God, uh, of being bold uh, in his service. And actually we've just seen in chapter 4 of, um, of Ruth a lovely little cameo um, of exactly that um, in, the, in the life of Boaz. Uh, Did did, did you catch that sort of balance between courage and fear? Uh, The issue of the the act of redemption uh, towards Naomi um, and Ruth uh, plays out between Boaz and his rival. Boaz is brave and the rival is fearful. Boaz accepts the risk of buying this land, spreading his uh, estate uh, more widely, um, acquiring uh, heirs who would not actually be his heirs because they would belong to the line of Elimelech. Boaz is bold, brave, courageous, ready to do that. Uh, And the unnamed rival says, I cannot. I might endanger my own estate. (coughs) I'm too afraid of where it might lead. And you get a lovely picture of the result of the boldness and the fear. Because Boaz, who was bold, is now remembered for all time. And his unnamed rival, who was fearful, is unnamed. Our author doesn't even bother to tell us the identity of this man. But this morning, um, I want us to to change tack. Um, Because uh, if there is one kind of fear that needs to be set aside, uh, there is another kind of fear that needs to be fostered and deepened. fear that we don't need less of, but a fear that we need much more of, uh, what the Bible refers to over and over again as the fear of the Lord. Uh, I want to, uh, to think of it um, under uh, three headings as we consider the fear of the Lord this morning. I'm going to think about it as uh, the foundation for our wisdom, as the driver for our obedience, and as the only proper response to our God. And as we begin uh, with the first of those, thinking about the fear of the Lord as the foundation for our wisdom, um, I'd love to to get you to think for a little bit about um, uh, uh, somebody from my past. Uh, Mark. Um, He's a real person from my past, though I've changed some details. Uh, Mark's a 28-year-old teacher who is being badly treated at work. He's got an immediate superior who is constantly putting him down um, in public, making him feel foolish and and silly by the way that she treats him. She sets unreasonable workloads. She often gives him tasks at the end of the day, uh, usually those that she should be completing herself. Mark's not sleeping, not eating properly. He feels alternately helpless and angry. He's irritable with the pupils that he's teaching. He's gaining weight. He's increasingly disinterested in his home group and his church. As he puts it, what difference does it make? His work colleagues say that uh, she's been doing this for years and needs sorting out. Uh, They think that uh, he should make a formal complaint. Here's my question to you. How would you help Mark? Um, Just chat with some people next to you. Can you think of any parts of the Bible uh, that you would choose to turn to in conversation with Mark? Just, Just chat for a few moments with the person next to you about that. Okay, what do you um, uh, what do you think? What have you gone for? Um. Anyone want to um? Anyone want to volunteer? Um, passage in the Bible that uh, you might choose to turn up with Mark, um, in order to help him, um, in this particular difficulty. Anyone got a passage that they reckon they'd turn to? pretty sort of nerve-wracking moment. Yeah, yeah. Well done, well done. What are you going to go for? Oh, sorry. Who's going for it? Go, go, uh, right at the back. Okay. Yeah, that is very clever, isn't it? Look, you included a verse with fear in it. Um, isn't that sort of themed on the weekend? Yeah, fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah, so you do matter. Yeah, okay. No, no, that would be why I do it. Um, yes. Uh, again, i mean you know picking up that that idea God is with you God comforts you uh God is alongside you yeah i would be good good verses uh, anyone got another got a third one yeah, yeah over there um sorry i'd l- lost the last bit. Yeah, yeah, um, critical, of, critical of those who have unreasonable burdens. Yeah, that would be a, be a clever way to go. Yeah, one more. Which psalm was that? Psalm 4, verse 1. So lovely, lovely words of, of comfort there too. Um, thank you, thank you. Great, uh, great verses. Um, um, here's an idea... How about this? Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, This is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I'm going to go for that one. Let's have a show of hands. Who's going to go for that verse with Mark? Look, some brave people. Some brave people in your midst. Here's how the story went. Um, There's an article written by a man called Christopher Ash, who some of you will have heard of. Uh, It's an article called A Pulpit in My Study. And in this article, it's a very old article now, um, he wrote about his puzzle. Because he said, if I was preaching on 1 Peter chapter 2, and I delivered a sermon, almost certainly when I got to the applicatory bit, I would be thinking to myself, do you know, slaves in first century um, sort of Israel, um, they were, it was much more like an employee-employer relationship. We're not talking about sort of, um, sort of the African slave trade. This is much more sort of woven into the economy. Um, so the, the slave-master relationship is much more analogous really to the employee-employer relationship. So when I got to this, um, if I was applying this, I'd almost certainly want to apply it uh, to people in their jobs who found themselves being ill-treated. It'd be the obvious application for a passage like this. And it would be pressed quite hard upon people because the pattern that they're being asked to follow is the pattern of Christ himself. It's walking in imitation of him and the Bible's big on that too. So how come Christopher Ash said in this article, that if I had someone sat in my study who'd come to see me to tell me that they were having a really hard time at work, chances are I'd put my arm around their shoulders and say, oh, that's terrible, you poor thing. How come the things that I teach on a Sunday somehow don't get translated into the personal conversation in my study? So he'd written this article, and I'd read it, The very next day, Mark walked into my study and told me his story. What could I do? I had no choice, did I? I had to turn up 1 Peter chapter 2. And I said to him, listen, I don't know how this is going to (laughs) go. But all I know is you and I need to look at this passage and we need to puzzle over it and we need to try and work out what this means for you in the situation you find yourself in. So that's what we did. He left. I thought that's probably it. (laughs) We won't see Mark in this church again. Two weeks later, he came back. And he said everything about his situation at work was transformed. Everything was different. Uh, And as he explained the story, um, what became evident was that in reading this passage and thinking about it, as he stepped back into his work context... It was, it was as if now he had something to do in the context of his ill treatment. Now he had someone to serve. Now he had a God to honour. He had a higher calling. He said it, it was kind of as if the boss had grown to gargantuan size in his mind, filling his frame of vision. And he could no longer see the God, who really existed, hidden behind this vast boss. But this passage, and particularly, do you notice it there? In reverent fear. This passage made God big again and made the boss small. boss was just a boss now, but God was God. And now in the context of his work, he was able to say, I'm living for my Lord. And I bring him glory by living like Christ in the face of this ill treatment. And of course, the funny thing was, as he shifted in the way that he operated, his boss shifted too. And she began to treat him differently because everything had changed about him. So this passage um, and that story explains why the fear of the Lord is described so many times in the Old Testament as the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom. Tim Keller says the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom is much the same as the alphabet being the beginning of reading. It's where you have to start. You just can't make progress without it. For what could be more fundamental, what could be more essential for you and me than to realize that there is a God who is our creator, who brought us into being and brought everything else into being, who stands outside the created order and by his might rules over our lives and over his world. And for us to be in awe of such a God. Um, can I say that we have done a really bad thing um, with the word awesome? Did you notice... Um, did you notice that on, on Friday night when we arrived, um, this was awesome? In fact, you as a church in your organizational brilliance were Awesome. Do you remember uh, that's what she said? She, she told you that you were an awesome church. Now, I mean, I agree with her. I think you're a great church. But we have devalued the word awesome, uh, if we want to use it like that. You know, I, I like you. You're a lovely church, but you do not fill me with awe. I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm not sorry. I'm very glad you don't. Because awe needs to be reserved for my God. For the one who is awesome. We, we need to recapture the word. I don't know if we'll manage it, uh, but we need to. We've lost a really good word that describes what it is to be in the presence of one who has such glory such power, such might is so holy that in his presence we are rightly overcome. It happens again and again in the Gospel accounts, actually, doesn't it? You thought about that? Uh, the way in which uh, again and again, uh, when the disciples see what Jesus is capable of, really get a glimpse of what he's like, it terrifies them. Uh, we looked at the, the, the stilling of the storm. You know, when Jesus speaks a word to the storm and the storm is still, they are terrified and ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Or, or in the very next chapter in Mark chapter 5, he heals that demoniac uh, um, you know, the, the, who's been occupied by legion, by all of those um, uh, uh, demons. And when they see the man, who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there dressed in his right mind, they don't say, whoa, Jesus, cool, that's really awesome. No, they, they're terrified. They are afraid of what they see, of who they see. But when they see Jesus walking on the water, they think he's a ghost, they cry out, because they see him and are terrified. And when they go up the mountain with him and see him transfigured before them, and a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Again and again, the response to the glory, the might, the power, the holiness, the otherness of God is terror. He exceeds us. He is not like us. He is not to be trifled with. He is our awesome God. C.S. Lewis captures it rather beautifully, doesn't he? Uh, in a different kind of way. In The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Uh, you remember the conversation if you've read the books. Uh, as Susan is hearing from Mr. Beaver, or is it Mrs. Beaver? It's Mrs. Beaver, um, and uh, is, uh, is told that Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good he's the king i tell you so first the fear of the lord is the foundation for our wisdom getting ourselves in right relationship with him understanding him for who he is and responding rightly with fear the fear of such a god And then secondly, fear of the Lord as the driver for our obedience. Um, Exodus chapter 20 is the chapter that uh, contains the description of the giving of the Ten Commandments uh, uh, to Moses uh, and the people. Um, And now that really was an awesome day. If you want awesome days, then uh, that day would do nicely. Thunder and lightning, clouds and trumpet, a God who speaks to his people. And if you remember how the passage ends, the passage ends with the people seeing the thunder and the lightning, hearing the trumpet, seeing the mountain in smoke and trembling with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. There's a people who understand the awesome might of the Lord. And how does God how how does Moses respond to them? Very next verse. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. It's It's a puzzling sort of verse, isn't it? Don't be afraid the fear of the God needs to be with you. He's teasing apart these two very different kinds of fear. They're not the same. That The fear of the Lord isn't quite the same as terror. It's certainly not a fear to be avoided. It's actually a fear that needs fostering. And it is also a fear that causes us not to sin. <clears throat> Years ago, at my primary school, uh, I, had, um, uh, I had a head teacher by the extraordinary name of Mr. Clutterbuck. What a great name. Um, he was actually a great man. He was a very big man. Um, I mean, I know I was small then, so maybe um, he seemed even bigger because I was small. But, uh, but I think he was a big man anyway. He was a big man with a very big moustache. Um, and he had this sort of air of authority that, that you, could sort of, you, know, you could sort of feel it as he walked past. Uh, it, was, it was that sort of evident. Um, but he was also a kind man. Um, he used to run our football team and he used to take football practice. Um, and uh, rather as uh, some of you, um, I notice, um, uh, use my son Tom, uh, and you use him, use it, have a nickname for him, Midge. Well, so in those days my nickname was Midge. And Mr. Clutterbuck used to call me Midge, which was a bit special, I thought, being called Midge by Mr. Clutterbuck. Anyway, one year we, were, we went on one of these school trip things, um, and we went all the way to Belgium. That was quite exciting. Um, and we were in Belgium, and we were wandering along. And you, you know how it is over on the continent, that um, in various bits they have those grills in the pavement. Down to sort of um, sort of wells under the you know which sort of have sort of lights into cellars I suppose I don't know what sort of thing. Anyway, somehow I got it into my head that these grills were a very clever way of doing their waste paper collection, and that and that somehow miraculously you know. You put things down these grills and then they got swooped up in this sort of system, I don't know why I thought it but anyway I did think it, or at least that's what I'm telling myself so I had some sweet wrappers uh, and so I dropped them down the grill feeling very pleased with myself and Mr Clutterbuck came alongside and he said, oh Mitch I would have expected better from you And I was utterly undone. I can still hear the words in my ears today. He didn't tell me off. There was no punishment. But I could not have felt more remorseful. It was a terrible moment. Why? Because I was in awe of Mr. Clutterbuck. Pleasing him really mattered to me. And to think that I had displeased him was about as bad as it could be. I think that is what Paul is on about in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not fear and trembling before Paul, although it's interesting how he ties it with his own presence or absence. Now, this is fear and trembling before the Lord. Notice that this is written to believers. Therefore, my dear friends... Paul's, Paul's not writing to, to these Christians to tell them, look, be careful. You know, obey the law because otherwise punishment's coming. That's not that, is it? They have a salvation. They don't need to fear judgment. They fear God, not because they think that he may hurt them. No, their concern is that they might hurt God. Even if there were no hell, John Calvin, the reformer, says, this kind of loving fear would still shudder at the thought of offending him alone. Do you see why there is this close link between fear and obedience. Not because, as Christians, we're terrified of judgment, but because we have such a sense of of the greatness and the glory of God, (coughs) such a desire to please him, such a dread of causing him grief, that we are tugged towards obedience. Serve the Lord with fear. Fear the psalmist says in psalm 2 uh, celebrate celebrate uh, his rule with trembling or as God says here in Deuteronomy oh that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever when we love the Lord like this when we when we love him with this with this fear of his greatness, this fearful devotion, it really bothers us that we should sin. Because it really bothers us that we might cause him to grieve over us. But how do we cultivate such a fear? We've seen that the fear of the Lord is the foundation for our wisdom. It orientates. It gets us right. It puts us in the right place in relation to him. puts us in the right place in our world. It, it just positions us. And then we've seen that this fear of the Lord is the driver for, for godly obedience. Not out of a fear of judgment. No, out of a fear uh, of grieving the God that we fear. Um, and now thirdly, the fear of the Lord as the only proper response to our God. If you've been here through the weekend and you've been following um, our path, then I think you'll be conscious at this point that, I'm, that, I, that I have been tugging you in two different directions. Because yesterday, um, our accent was very much on the closeness of God, that he was for us that he's with us, that he's in us. That with all his might and power, he defends us, he keeps us, he fights our battles for us. We shelter under his wing. He's like this vast mother bird, and we're like a chick uh, that nestles beneath the feathers of his might. And because of these things, we can be comforted when we feel afraid. Because if this God is for us, who could be against us? But this morning I've I've wanted to, to tug us in a slightly different direction by considering not the closeness of our God, but his otherness. Remembering that our God is not like us, that he is, as 1 Timothy chapter 6 puts it, he is the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. And because of it, he should be feared. So I've tugged you in two directions, I've tugged you in the direction of of being comforted by the closeness of your God and fearing him who is unapproachable. And you might be at this point thinking to yourselves, well, make your mind up. Come on, decide, which is it? Now, do we need to know his closeness or do we need to know his awesome otherness? And of course the answer is, we need to know both. We must know both if we are to know our Lord God properly he is utterly holy unapproachable by sinful men and women like us but he is also the God who has shown us grace and it's no accident that that these verses that come in Philippians chapter 2 that urge us to to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling it's no accident that those verses come immediately after Uh, That great hymn to Christ, telling us that he who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. This is what our God has done. This God who is unapproachable has nevertheless come near in Christ, And our task as believers is to remember both of these things. To hold them in tension in our Christian experience and our Christian understanding. Because only then will we get discipleship right. Only then will we get relationship with the Lord right. Just think about it for a moment. If, if you believe in a God who accepts only the most moral people with the most upstanding, righteous Way of living, then I suppose that might stir in you a slavish obedience through fear of punishment. On the other hand, if you believe in a God who casually accepts everyone because he's that sort of loving God, well, I suppose that might stir in you a sort of warm affection. Well, that's nice. Glad God's loving. It is only when you hold these two things in tension. It's only the belief that we are saved by a God of such utter holiness that it is only the death of His very own Son that can make it possible for us to be in relationship with Him. And when you hold both of those truths together, so holy that we daren't enter His presence, so gracious that he'll even sacrifice his own son to make it possible for us to enter his presence, that we catch this right combination of a fear of the Lord that is also bold to approach the throne of grace. Do you see, we need both of these. And and my final question to you would be, in which direction do you drift in error? Which of those two poles do you tend to, 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 to slide towards as you slide into error? Do you see what I mean? Is your tendency to, to, to see God as, as very stern? And to be frightened of getting punishment from him if you don't do things right? Right? Or is your tendency to see God as your mate and to be pretty casual with him? Most of us probably slide into one of those two errors. Our task is to hold together the knowledge of the holiness of God and his grace that comes close to us in comfort. After coffee, we're going to share bread and wine together. I can't think of a better way to to remember these things side by side. Can you? I think that's why Jesus gave it to us and told us, um, do this in remembrance of me. Keep doing it because it will locate you correctly. Because when we remember the, the, the shed blood and the broken body, we remember simultaneously the impossibility of approaching god on our own merits we see just how holy he is but we also see how lovingly gracious he is that he would do this for me Uh, we'll say the prayer of humble access we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table you are that holy and i am that unholy not worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table lord god But you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Astonishing. When we put the cross central, we'll get this right. But don't put the cross central as if it's the place where I get my free ticket, my pass into heaven. No, put the cross central because the cross is where we see the character of our God. His holiness and his grace held together in the sacrifice that he had to make, but that he was willing to make. He is unapproachably holy. We should fear him. But he is unswervingly gracious. We should fear him. want to suggest that um, as we come to the end of these four reflections on the theme of fear um, i give you a few moments before we move to a final song Um, and, and you might want to reflect on this how will I respond to this unapproachably holy God who has nevertheless drawn close to me in Christ what will the fear of the Lord mean for me in this coming week or this coming year? What might he press upon you as a result of this weekend uh, and all the things that he's shown us in his word? Let me give you a few minutes to to reflect on that um, before uh, we uh, move to a final song.